something. It's like a moment ago there seemed like a lot was going on, and then we reflect, and it's like there's nothing there. It's like uh, I think sometimes when you're observing a wild animal or even a bug, you know, it's going along its merry way, and then you look, you know, and it freezes up. It like plays dead or something, doesn't move. Sometimes for a long time, it just sits perfectly still. It's like, who's going to leave first? <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit tricky, these questions like, uh, are we confident that somewhere here in the mind, in the heart, there's this authentic wish to be happy, this trustworthy wish to be free, to be happy, to be safe and protected. Because, you know, the actual evidence we have seems to contradict it, because a lot of the time, you know, our actions seem to have a lot more to do with being hostile toward ourselves, toward the world. In the latest issue of uh, Buddha Dharma, this uh, Buddhist journal, they have a, a section of Joko Beck's book, Ordinary, uh, I'm sorry, Everyday Zen. And she died in June, so they're honoring her life by having this article. She was 94, one of the real great Western Dharma teachers, Zen teacher. So this is an article called A Sane Life. And she says, To some degree, we all find life difficult, perplexing and oppressive. Even when it goes well, as it may for a time, we worry that it probably won't keep on that way. Depending on our personal history, we arrive at adulthood with very mixed feelings about this life. If I were to tell you that life is already perfect, whole, and complete, just as it is, you would think I was crazy. Nobody believes his or her life is perfect. And yet there is something within each of us that basically knows we are boundless, limitless. We are caught in the contradiction of finding life a rather perplexing puzzle, which causes us a lot of misery and at the same time being dimly aware of the boundless, limitless nature of life. So we begin looking for an answer to the puzzle. The first way of looking is to seek a solution from outside of ourselves. At first, this may be on a very ordinary level. There are many people in the world who feel that if only they had a bigger car, a nicer house, better vacations, a more understanding boss, or a more interesting partner, then their life would work. We all go through that one. Slowly we wear out most of our if-onlys. If only I had this or that, then my life would work. Not one of us isn't, to some degree, still wearing out our if-onlys. She goes on to talk about how we do this, of course, even with our spiritual life. Now, if only I had insight, if only I could realize my loving heart, 
if only I were a kind person. So I want to go back to where we left off yesterday, really bringing a fresh and pragmatic look at the causes for happiness. However, we may feel happiness is available as long as we're at least open to the possibility that real happiness is available, then it makes a lot of sense we'd be interested in causes leading to that happiness, willing to experiment. And, you know, we have a lot of people who have shared with us their points of view around that. So it's not like we're even starting from scratch. You know, the Buddha, we had Jack Hornfield last night, you know, his distillation was, you know, the question, the ongoing reflection, like learning to love well now, learning to live fully now, learning to let go now, as part of the causes leading to happiness. In a more traditional Buddhist sense, I think these align well with the three wholesome roots. Learning to love well is this root of non-aversion. Learning to live fully is this root of non-greed. And learning to let go is the root of non-delusion. I'll talk about this tonight. I think these three wholesome roots are, I think, part of our essential vocabulary as a practitioner. So I'm encouraging people to memorize this very simple list. And this exists as one of the eight steps in the path that the Buddha laid out. This is the second step. So in the category of wisdom, wisdom includes right view and right intention. And the definition of right intention, or sometimes translated as right thought, are these three wholesome roots. Right thought, right intention, meaning intention, of course, is the whole mechanism of reality. Reality runs on intention. So, or as the Tibetan Buddhists say, everything rests on the tip of motivation. So, the Buddha suggests that right intention are intentions of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Or we could say living fully loving well, and letting go. These three intentions, it's not so much that, you know, we have to be good to be happy or we have to deserve it to be happy. Happiness is a natural unfolding. When there is non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, happiness happens. It can't not happen. This is how nature is. You know, when there are causes and conditions, things happen. This whole deepening understanding of happiness is going away from this personal, these personal thoughts we have about happiness, like thoughts like, I don't deserve to be happy, or God doesn't love me, or it isn't fair. So we're describing the presence or absence of happiness in terms of some personal story, 
to a more, I think, spiritually mature view where we understand happiness is just nature, you know. And if the conditions are there, then there's happiness there. If the supporting conditions are there, then there will be happiness. And if the supporting conditions aren't there, there won't be happiness. See how different this is than a lot of our views that arise, especially when we start getting frustrated and despairing and uh, helpless, giving up hope. And somehow we feel like, well, it's just not possible. But you see, that view, that thought itself is not a cause for happiness. Being despairing is not a cause for happiness. Now, I'm not saying in a certain situation that it's uh, not understandable why a human being would be despairing. All I'm saying, pragmatically speaking, is being helpless, having those thoughts of helplessness, do not lead to happiness. It leads to unhappiness. So we want to be um, really straightforward and honest as we look. Because we feel, you know, in a weird way maybe, we feel justified or that it's appropriate to lament, to complain. I mean, think about how much of our time we've spent complaining. Jenny sent me this article uh, a couple of weeks ago Forgetting the person's name now. Some. Who is it? David Engelman. David Engelman? Engelman. A scientist. And he's got several interesting things. But in one article, uh, just a couple pages long, he adds up all the minutes we've spent doing this and that, sitting on a toilet, turning the pages, or, you know, uh, eating, or... So in terms of a, an average lifetime of 80 years, you know, how many months have we spent waiting in line? How many months, you know? And think about how many days, maybe months, maybe longer, we've spent complaining or blaming or justifying our unhappiness. You know, like the inevitability of our unhappiness, how we either deserve it or that you know, nature, God, whatever is out to get us, or this is our just desserts for our despicable actions in the past. As opposed to, you know, at the end of our life and looking at the sum of all the moments, how many moments have we consciously, wholeheartedly, intentionally set in motion causes and conditions for happiness? And if the answer is zero, <laughs> you know, wouldn't this be a good time to start? <laughs> you know, if we were kindergarten teachers, you know, very wise kindergarten teachers, we'd sort of do what we have to do to keep our job. But once we've secured that, we'd spend all the other time training these kids in the causes for happiness. Because that's what would really matter. It's sometimes hard to hold this because um, 
because, you know, each of us in our own way, to some degree at least, feel unsuccessful at being happy, like uh, Jokobek suggests in that section that I read. So we don't really want to be feel responsible. We'd much rather either feel, it seems like, we'd much rather feel helpless or be able to blame our genes or our culture, our upbringing, you know, whatever, on our sort of what we might think of as the lack of happiness. But again, if we think about this in terms of what actually works, one of the things you might find that actually works is taking responsibility. Like, taking responsibility for our happiness is one of the causes for happiness. In the same way that thinking that it has nothing to do with me or with how I'm participating in reality, that's, you know, one of the causes probably for unhappiness. Because we're not going to learn a lot about cause and effect thinking that it's not my fault, it's not my responsibility to be happy, to set in motion happiness. So let's go through the three wholesome and unwholesome roots in a little bit more detail. We'll start with non-greed, or maybe what Jack Hornfield would call living fully. Living fully means, you know, stepping, stepping up to the moment, meeting the moment, not picking and choosing, being inclusive. So not being confused by our conceptions of good and bad. Because that's what keeps us from really engaging or stepping up to the moment, is we've immediately judged how it is. Oh, this is, this is a bad talk, or you know, this is one of my bad retreats. And then it's like we don't have to step up because... It's not working, you know. And maybe later, when things are right, I'll fully step up and meet my life. But this is a bad day. I mean, just think about, we could call this like the practice of postponement. This is not the time to show up. This is not the time to put in our best effort. And this is really poignant. When uh, in high school and college, I was a pretty serious cross-country and track runner. Now, I noticed this part of my mind, you know, that would rationalize uh, a partial effort. (laughs) You know, because it hurts to make a full effort in anything, whether it's academics or intimate relationships or athletics. You know, full commitment hurts in a way. It hurts partly because... you know, just the effort itself can hurt. But also the exposure, the ego is very exposed because we're putting our all into it. And so we, it seems like we protect ourselves by holding back a little bit. Waiting for better circumstances. So... One way to go beyond this this sort of addiction to picking and choosing and, you know, it's a kind of 
controlling and uh, like strategizing relationship to life. Of course, coming out of a sense of neediness. And it always, uh, it's always about, it always ends up being like not fully meeting. So there are three ways that came to my mind at least how we might formally practice strengthening this intention. Because remember, as one of the wholesome intentions, one part of the Eightfold Path, this step leads to happiness. So how can we, how can we, how can the mind be infused with the intention of non-greed? So one way might be just to uh, cultivate the perception of contentment. It's like we could look right now. I'm not saying that we're going to find perfect contentment. But just, it's so easy for us to sort of notice what's not perfect and to attend to that. You know, maybe sensations in the body that are somewhat unpleasant or temperature of the room's not exactly perfect or whatever it might be. But can we train the mind to attend to what's good enough? To being content with what is. And feel the bliss or the pleasantness of contentment. This happiness, this non-contention, this acceptance with what is. And again, like I mentioned last night, it's so much about what we're paying attention to. You know, it's like that cliche. Are we paying attention to that the glass is half full or half empty? Well, it actually makes a big difference. And I'm not saying we should never notice that it's half empty. But we should definitely be able to notice in terms of it being half full. You know, like how this retreat, this moment, this talk, this body, this mind is okay, that we can actually be content. Some of you have heard me share this teaching by the Dalai Lama where he says something like, people should, instead of being content with their spiritual practice and discontent with what they have, they should switch it around, be discontent with your spiritual practices and content with what you have. So let's just take a few seconds and and just experiment, like what would that be now to cultivate the perception of contentment? Related is the perception of gratitude or appreciating, you know, like appreciating 
the good fortune of being here and the safety. Even if we had a miserable day and are really tired, we can still appreciate you know, the relative wholesomeness of us being together, all of us being together. Even if we have great doubts about our capacity or about this tradition of practice, still there's some things here to appreciate, to be content with. Another relatively accessible way to recognize this intention in the mind is to cultivate the perception of generosity, to notice moments of generosity, moments of service, of giving. Notice what it feels like when we're able to be helpful, even in very little ways, letting somebody get into the bathroom before us or picking something up. The expression or the movement of generosity is the feeling of living fully. It's like if we're needy, if we're feeling like we don't have enough, you know, we don't have time to be generous and to really like receive that experience, know that experience. Even like maybe you noticed during the the metta practice this afternoon. I mean, it can seem, you know, when we think about it, it can seem so insignificant to spend 25 minutes bringing somebody, bringing different people to mind and wishing them well. But pragmatically, actually, I find it feels pretty good. It actually changes my mind changes how it is for me. <coughs> you know, in the Zen tradition and other traditions, they chant the bodhisattva vows, one of which, one of them, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. You know, we could be, in the Theravada tradition, you know, we tend to be a little bit more pragmatic and uh, grounded in the sort of more ordinary experience. But still, we could have that, like, if there's something to do, you know, may I do it? Something needs to be done, however small. And a way of, like, seeing, conceiving of our life as sort of a process of giving, of responding well, to the moments, because it leads to happiness, you know, and to really observe that connection, like taking care of everyone, which of course doesn't mean neglecting ourselves, we're one of those people, (laughs) you know, so taking care of everyone, including ourselves, is a path to happiness. Feeling like I don't have the time It's not my responsibility. Nobody's taking care of me. 
these are the causes, of course, for unhappiness. Even it feels so appropriate. I mean, I, I see this all the time with my wife. You know, when I'm feeling needy or if I'm sort of fixated on a perception of some imbalance in our relationship, and so then I like hold back, well, I'm not going to wash that dish. You know, I'm not going to put this away. I'm not going to do this because it's not my responsibility, you know. My responsibility is to sort of help her see her responsibilities. (laughs) I guarantee this is a cause for suffering. (laughs) But it's also a cause for suffering to wash the dish, you know, in order to show her how bad she is, or whatever. You know, there are many wrong reasons to wash the dish, just like there are many wrong reasons to not wash the dish. So this is why we're reviewing these three wholesome intentions. It's like we want to really know what these taste like in the mind. Very quickly be able to assess whether this is actually a wholesome intention or not. Because that's what matters in terms of setting emotion happiness. The outward expression of our action doesn't really matter much. What matters is the actual intention in the mind. And it's often very subtle. And of course, you know, it's easy for us to, to pretend or to uh, fake it. I mean, the terrible tragedy, probably, probably the ultimate tragedy, is that we're willing to fake ourselves you know, to pretend we're doing this when we're actually doing that, and we, like, cover up our tracks so we don't even know what we're doing. We actually are being hateful, but we pretend we're doing something to help this person. We're angry, but we're pretending to be, you know, a loving partner or something like that. I mean, this is real insanity. So... When we cultivate the perception of contentment, we're really, uh, we're noticing, it's like the interesting thing about the intentions that lead to happiness, the intention themselves, the intentions themselves are beautiful. They feel good. So when you notice that seed of contentment, of gratitude in your mind, and you're watering it with attention, with awareness, it will feel good. And then as it begins to blossom, expand, it's like the expansion of bliss. Contentment, gratitude, the happiness of simplicity, of things being good enough, isn't like this sort of complacent resignation, but it's, uh, it's an enlivening because the chronic neediness is put down for a while. And it's so enlivening not to need things to be other than they are. Because then, like, we put down that neurotic, toxic neediness, and it's like we got all this life energy, and there's nothing we have to get because we're content. So there's this possibility of actually delighting or rejoicing. Came across, this is from Shambhala's son, I think, um, one of Thomas Merton's poems was 
there they put in the magazine, Oh Sweet Irrational Worship, it's called. I'll just read a little bit of it. If you don't know, Thomas Merton was a Catholic monk and uh, got very interested in Eastern spirituality, including Zen and other aspects of Buddhism, and unfortunately died when he was quite young. Oh, sweet irrational worship, wind and bob white and the afternoon sun, by ceasing to question the sun, I have become light, bird and wind. My leaves sing, I am earth, earth. All these lighted things grow from my heart. Oh, sweet, irrational worship. And this is that, this sort of pointing to that lightness of contentment, the lightness of generosity or service. Just that confidence that we have something, there is something good we can do, even if it's just having a loving wish. Like, when, what situation would it be inappropriate to have a loving wish? Even if it's just a loving wish toward ourself, simple tenderness toward ourselves. And then one more thing about um, the intention of non-greed, of living fully, is this bliss of renunciation. The Buddha talks about this quite a bit. And so I'm kind of making a slightly different point than contentment, which is... Um, Contentment, I'm thinking about in terms of like noticing that this moment is good enough, is really okay. That this moment as it actually is now, already is now, that, uh, you know, it's, it's sufficient for the heart to be relaxed, to be free of stinginess or neediness free of struggling. The bliss of renunciation is like when we're that feeling of putting down the load. When we're, when we're caught up and getting and we put it down. You know, caught up in becoming somebody and we put it down. Oh, I don't need to become that person. I don't need to do that thing. So it's that feeling of relief. Think about those struggles you've we've been in, and then re the realization: I don't have to do that. Some of you know David Alselstein, who managed the renovation project of the building that we're in now, Come Grounds Inn. And he was at a talk in Seattle where Ajahn Sumedho was speaking. And some of you know, in the last couple of years, it's been brewing for a while, but for the last couple of years, there's been a lot of, a lot of pain in the, that monastic sangha around the full ordination of the nuns, the Buddhist nuns. And it's just a very complicated issue. And somebody after Ajahn Sumedho, who was the abbot of Amravati and sort of the head of the Western lineage in the Ajahn Chah tradition. There are a number of Western monasteries now that Ajahn Sumedho has helped found. And he's an older man in his mid-70s, maybe even late 70s now. 
And so he, he was given a talk, and uh, he had already re, uh, announced his intention to give up the abbotship of Amaravati. Ajahn Amaro was now abbot there. And he was doing sort of like a farewell tour of some of the monasteries in Canada and the United States. So he was speaking, and somebody asked him about this controversy about the nuns. And he started to answer, and this is how David describes it, you know. And he stopped, and with a big smile, and he said, I don't have to have an opinion about this anymore. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he wasn't in charge of the order. He had sort of passed up the torch. And just that, you know, like, what a relief. Like, maybe we don't need to have an opinion. Maybe next... Uh, well, about a year from now, when we have to vote, in the next big election at least, maybe in that instant, when we're in the voting booth, and the paper's in front of us, then, you know, we can have an opinion, and then we can drop it. We can have just enough of an opinion, you know, to put the dot where it needs to be, and then we can let it go. And all this other time, we don't actually have to have an opinion. We can just still be sensitive to the different information that comes our way, but we don't have to come to a conclusion. What a relief that would be. Or, you know, this thing in Alabama where they're trying to decide when does life begin, you know? It'd be so easy, you know, well, maybe Buddhists should have an opinion about this, you know? All the other religious traditions seem to have an opinion. You know, we've got to step to the plate and decide, you know, when does life begin? Well, you know, maybe as Buddhists, you know, we can be the people that appreciate how wonderful it is not to have to have an opinion, like to put on that load of needing to have an opinion about this. Or even having an idea of where we're going with our life. You know, sometimes we have to make choices, and then, like with voting, in that moment, we'll decide, okay, I'll do this for my vacation, I'll marry this person, or I'll become partners with this person. I often felt that one of the real joys of being married, having an intimate relationship, is like not having to have opinions about all the attractive people I meet. You know, like, how about this person? How about that person? You know, I mean, not that he... <laughs> so to be honest. But it is, I find it, a relief because I remember, oh yeah, I made that choice. I made that choice. You know, it's a practice of contentment. And it, it's like we don't have to be idealistic or romantic. Oh yeah, this is the one. I know it sounds a little funny to say, but this one is enough. This can be enough. This is enough of a relationship to pour my heart into it completely, to show up completely. Because we're recognizing that it's more the attitude we bring to things than things themselves. What is our attitude about our job, our home, our relationship, our body, the way our mind is, the way our personality is. Because there are people who, you know, don't have a good body in some objective sense, but it isn't a problem to them. 
And there are people who have bodies that are objectively, you know, would be classified as a good body to have, that are very dissatisfied with their body. And this goes on and on. It isn't about the body. It isn't about the personality. It isn't about our life situation as much as we tend to think that it is. So the next one of the uh, intentions, wholesome intentions, non-aversion, the Buddha puts it into the negative. You could call it kindness, the intention of kindness, or as Jack Kornfield says in his book, learning to love well. Often, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, we think about anger, hatred, flowing out of the frustration of not getting what we want. You know, we crave this, we're discontent, we feel needy, we feel like we need things to be other than they are, and then they don't, we don't end up getting what we want, so we get frustrated. And that pain of frustration hurts, and we get mean because we're hurting. Have you noticed that? Like, when we're in a lot of pain, it's not easy to be kind to our partners and our friends. Even if they're there to help, you know, we tend to be irritable and mean. If we're in traffic and it's hurting us, we tend to get mean. If we're on retreat and there's a lot of pain, we tend to be mean and judgmental. We may not act it out because we're being good, but we tend to be mean. A lot of people, sometimes when I meet one-on-one with people, or even sometimes if, if they're honest in the small groups, they're, they're own that, you know, just about how much negativity they're spewing inside themselves of course but sometimes people actually can't hold it in and they write a nasty note to somebody who's pushing their buttons your nylon windbreaker is making so much noise when you walk in the room can't you buy a cotton you know or a windbreaker that doesn't make so much noise when you walk or now, if you have a nylon windbreaker, I'm not thinking of you. <laughs> I'm just thinking about things people, you know, say at times, the things that can be so upsetting and be taken so personally when we're hurting. Think about in our pasts, think about relatively trivial things that have felt so personal. You know, I, little tiny things my wife has done have felt so personal, you know, like she's personally, you know, cutting me off, cutting me out of her heart. But it was just such a, a little habit of her personality that I took and made it into this real life. She attacked me, you know, so I'm going to attack her back. I'm going to show her how bad she was, which is just another kind of an attack. So this is aversion, of course. And... The thing that really um, turns us around about aversion is we see it is completely insane. It never helps. Aversion never makes anything better. Anger, hatred doesn't make anything better. So we could say it's insane. And this is an insight because once we see that anger, hatred, aversion, any kind of... uh, pushing somebody, pushing something out of our heart, once we see that it doesn't work at all, no benefit comes from it, then we get the first step, you know, how to cultivate 
this intention of non-aversion or loving well. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the first step because we're forgiving ourselves for being hateful, for being angry, for closing our heart off. And all of a sudden now we're practicing this wise intention which leads to happiness. So isn't that interesting how cultivating the causes for unhappiness, seeing it and forgiving ourselves causes happiness. We can actually use the messes we've created to be part of the causes and conditions for happiness. For example, like I said, forgiving ourselves for being a mean person. Understanding how easy it is to be mean and forgiving ourselves. This is a great tenderizing of the heart. Just seeing that hatred is insane and forgiving ourselves, it's this great tenderizing and it just expands. Like any wholesome happiness is an expanded, expansive state, right? When we feel happy, it's expanded. When we're suffering and unhappy, it's a constricted, narrow state. So energetically, we can recognize very quickly is there an opening up, an expansion, or a, a nailing down, a tightening up? And so when we are moved, when we see how insane hatred and aversion and irritation and judgment, when we see how insane that is, how tight that is, and we care about it, we forgive ourselves, we forgive others, it just loosens up all that tightness. It feels good. It's a cause for happiness. And we can directly say that to ourselves. I care about this insanity. We can let our heart break for how much insanity we've participated in in the past. But that doesn't have to be the cause for unhappiness. That recognition, that um, honest acknowledgement can break our heart in a way that feels really good. It's like part of the opening up and the forgiveness. Another way we can cultivate non-aversion or learning to love well is just to begin where it's easy, like we do generally in our loving-kindness practice, our compassion practice, our appreciative joy practice and equanimity practice, where we're just sort of holding the possibility of friendliness, like, and just see who comes to mind. Like, who would be easy to link up with this potential to be friendly, to be kindly. And then we work, you know, we remember the person and we water that habit, that capacity to be friendly. I care about you. May you be happy and healthy and at ease in life. So it has a real effect. And one of the things we should check after we do our 30 minutes or whatever of metta, loving-kindness practice, is like, does it actually work? Do we feel happier than we did before? Is there a more expanded, a lighter, more free, nimble quality in the heart and mind than before? Because this isn't supposed to be theoretical. You know, these practices are meant to be very pragmatic. They're supposed to work. And if they don't work, we should investigate that. Was I doing it correctly? 
was I actually watering seeds of non-aversion in my mind through this, you know, formal practice? Or was I doing something else? Because as I mentioned earlier, it's very easy for us to pretend we're doing something but actually doing something else. You know, the key about starting where it's easy, like a lot of people don't like that. They think it's sentimental to start where it's easy, especially when you suggest, well, you could even start with your cat, you know. For a lot of us who have pets, you know, just, we're just thinking about the animals. You know, we heard that owl during the Qigong practice, you know. It just moves our heart that there are these creatures Some of you were watching the birds at the bird feeder, you know. It just moves our heart. These creatures doing the best they can to survive. It's very easy. And it doesn't matter if it's easy. You know, sometimes we're embarrassed to start where it's easy. But see, the point is gaining confidence that happiness is available. Gaining confidence in in the goodness of our heart, you know, that it's not only capable of being good, but that goodness feels good. It leads to happiness. We somehow, it's in a funny way, we're suspicious of what of being really pragmatic. <coughs> I think partly it's that we we really want things to be defined. Like we're either having a miserable life or we're having a great life, but we don't want our life to be. So, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but, you know, just a matter of causes and conditions. Like when we're having a, lo- a lousy time, we, we want to own it personally, like, God, my life sucks. Or when we're, things are great, it's like we want to own it personally. But instead, you know, as we practice more in this way, it's, it's not personal at all. It's just pragmatic. It's just a matter of causes and conditions. What causes and conditions have been set in motion? It's very impersonal. The other thought I had about non-aversion is uh, just replacing these old, very well-worn habits of being tight and hard and controlling and impatient. And just by uh, generating the intention to be soft, to be yielding, to be receptive, to be patient, to be gentle, to be non-contentious. I mean, like, just check it out. So when you're eating, you know, instead of like, I should be mindful, which is such a heavy trip, to be a little bit more specific, like, just to be gentle, or just to have a soft body. It, it's it's an easier instruction than be mindful. Because we know how to soften, right? We know how to be gentle. This is what our mom taught us. You know, if you had younger brothers and sisters, you know, and there they are, three months old and or whatever, four years old, or, you know, honey, you need to be gentle. <laughs> You know, Bobby, Bobby's just a baby. He can get hurt. You know, and same with, you know, with the cat. You know, being, teaching kids to be around a cat or 
around your cell phone or, you know. <laughs> so we know it's, it's a pretty easy step for us to practice doing something to be gentle. When you walk from here to your walking area, you know, we could just remind ourselves to be soft, to be gentle, to be patient. And we're just replacing those habits. It's almost like because we have, you know, uh, we have this apparent weight. You know, our bodies have weight. And our emotions also have weight. You know, irritation feels like it has some weight. And it seems like, well, as long as I got this weight, I should throw it around. It's like a power. And we feel... Like we're missing an opportunity if we don't throw it around. Because we can raise our voice doesn't mean we should raise our voice. You know, because we can express anger doesn't mean we should express anger. Just because we can st- stomp our feet, or, you know, slam doors or push things around, doesn't mean that leads to happiness or leads to anything worthwhile at all. So. You know, part of the practice of non-aversion can be so simple by just practice being soft and gentle and patient. It changes. I mean, it's interesting how something so concrete, just how we're moving our body, affects our mind. But the body and the mind really reflect each other. So one of the ways we can reflect the more subtle aspects of the mind is working with something that's more concrete, like how the body is, how the body's moving through space. I was thinking about this today, and it's like the United States and other countries that have a lot of economic or military power. It's hard not to use it. We actually have to train ourselves, because it's not like we want to be powerless. That's not the way to practice being gentle. It's actually, in terms of non-aversion, learning to love well, it's much more useful to feel quite strong and powerful and still be able to be soft and yielding. It's much more beautiful. You know, there's not much beauty and, you know, somebody completely defeated and weak being gentle and sort of uh, accommodating, (laughs) you know, because we just assume the person's trying to survive. And it's a whole other thing when you see somebody who's quite powerful being gentle and soft and receptive. You know, we're always moved when, you know, the President of the United States takes the time to listen or to be receptive or something like that, right? Because we assume where they've got so much power, they don't have to be nice. So then being nice is coming from a different place. You know, if we have to be nice to survive, that's not really being nice. So this practice of being soft and gentle and accepting, it's meant to that practice is meant to come from a place of being powerful, feeling alive, feeling like we have this full range of possibility. But in this moment, 
or choosing to be soft because it's an expression of kindness. It's an expression of loving well. This is the appropriate response to this moment. But in another moment, being strong might be the appropriate response. Being tough might be the appropriate response. And so we, we need to be able to do that. That may be how we're kind in the next moment, by standing up, by speaking loudly. And then the last of the three wholesome roots or wholesome intentions, non-delusion or wisdom, you could say, or letting go, learning to let go, as Jack Hornfield talks about. So what are we letting go of? We're letting go of delusion or we're letting go of wrong view letting go of ignorance, we're letting go of what's extra or false, like our false conclusions. So how do we practice, how do we strengthen this intention, this cause for happiness? Because non-delusion is a cause for happiness. Delusion is the primary cause for unhappiness. That's how the Buddha set up this path. Ignorance or delusion is the cause for suffering. Not because we're bad, but because in that moment the mind is deluded. It's not seeing things as they are and therefore leads to the causes for suffering, for stress. So, some of the obvious ways to practice is the practice of bringing a full attention to the ordinary bare experience of the present moment, knowing a breath going in, knowing a breath going out. When we're willing to develop a breadth of awareness, a depth of awareness, including what's subtle, not just what's obvious, we are putting to bed, we're letting our delusions die. Because if I'm fully present with the breath, I can't be maintaining deluded notions, conceptual ideas about what's happening. It's one or the other. Either we're with the lifting and placing of each step, or we're thinking about whether we're doing our practice correctly. You can't do both. It seems like we're doing both, but that's just because we're not paying attention. Either we're present, and if we're present, that conceptual thinking falls into the background because the mind is aware of the flow of experience, of the sensation in this case. Another way we practice is non-confusion with thoughts of good and bad. So partly we practice by paying close attention to things as they are, and partly we practice non-delusion by not being confused when thoughts do arise, conceptualizations do arise. And in particular, to be on the lookout for the some of the big ones, like any notion of good and bad, any of that evaluation. Here's a little bit more from Joko Beck's article. Joy isn't something we have to find. Joy is who we are if we're not preoccupied with something else. When we try to find joy, we are simply adding a thought, and an unhelpful one at that, onto the basic fact of what we are. We don't need to go looking for joy. 
but we do need to do something. The question is what? Our lives don't feel joyful and we keep trying to find a remedy. Our lives are basically about perception. By perception I mean whatever the senses bring in. We see, we hear, we touch, we smell, and so on. That's what life really is. Most of the time, however, we substitute another activity for perceptions. We cover it over with something else, which I'll call evaluation, right? or we could call it conceptualizing or thinking. By evaluation, I don't mean an objective, dispassionate analysis, as, for example, when we look over a messy room and consider or evaluate how to clean it up. The evaluation I have in mind is egocentric, ego-centered. Is this next episode of my life going to bring me something I like or not? Is it going to hurt or isn't it? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Does it make me important or unimportant? Does it give me something material? It's our nature to evaluate in this way. To the extent that we give ourselves over to evaluation of this kind, joy will be missing from our lives. And then a little later she goes, until we know that joy is exactly what's happening, minus our opinion of it. It's <laughs> a great line, isn't it? Until we know that joy is exactly what's happening, minus our opinion of it, we're, gonna, we're going to have only a small amount of joy. When we stay with perception rather than getting lost in evaluation, however, joy can be the person who didn't do the job while we were gone. It can be the interesting encounter on the phone with all the people we have to call, no matter what they want. Joy can be having a sore throat. It can be getting laid off. It can be unexpectedly having to work overtime. It can be having to take a math exam or dealing with one's former spouse who wants more money. Usually we don't think that these things are joy. So paying attention to ordinary experience, non-confusion with good and bad, evaluations, learning to trust stillness, silence, space, and emptiness is another way to practice non-delusion. So immediately, like uh, having an intuition or um, a sense of the mind free or relatively free of conceptualizations. That's what we mean, that's what we use these words in Buddhism, that's why we use these words like silence, stillness, spaciousness, emptiness. It's referring to the mind that's free of neurotic habits for a moment. And we intuit that sense, that absence, right? Because the absence of something is still something. You know, the absence of greed, anger, and delusion, or the absence of the hindrances in the mind, that's something. We can call it the emptiness of greed, anger, and delusion. But it's still something. Or we can call it space. Or we can call it silence, or stillness, or peace. So once you have a sense from your practice, then just remembering peace is a practice of non-delusion and a cause for happiness. Just remembering peace, or stillness, or spaciousness. And then finally, non-delusion can be practiced through the reflection that everything is nature. 
So this is just a direct um, challenge to the tendency, the habit to see things personally. So we're just practicing seeing everything in terms of nature, everything internally, like if we feel a very personal emotion, like some shame or embarrassment, we see that, feel that movement of that emotion as a movement of nature. If we see somebody doing something really beautiful that makes us envious or makes us really happy, we see that also as a movement of nature. In the same way that we notice the breeze hitting the dry grass, you see that as a movement of nature, the beauty of that, or the call of the owl, or the brightness of the full moon. Everything is a movement of nature. Now, we're already pretty good at noticing some things as the movement of nature, but we have to start including the things that we generally see and take very personally also as the movement of nature. And the more we do this, we start noticing the happiness of effortlessness because the more we see all of this seemingly personal stuff as a movement of nature, the more we realize that nobody has to do anything for this life to be lived because it's all nature doing it already. And, and that's the flavor of happiness. This is the highest, in a way, the highest happiness of liberation. Everything is happening on its own. There's no egocentric weight to lug around because it's all happening on its own. So this is also a cause for happiness. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. We'll come back to this tomorrow night one more time. Take a few breaths together. Keeping things really simple. I care about this life. I wish to be free, to be happy and at ease. I'm willing to better understand the causes of happiness. May this deepening understanding support happiness in this heart and in this world. Tonight we'll have walking practice, and then at 9 o'clock we'll come. And on the back side of the refuges and precepts is a traditional loving-kindness chant that we'll do in Pali. So we'll do that right at 9 o'clock, and then sit until 9.30. People can continue sitting after that. Later tonight, before I go to bed, I'll put out a sign-up for one-on-one practice interviews for tomorrow and on Sunday morning so that uh, people who want that can sign up. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.